You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Hey, before we get started, let's hear from one of our sponsors. Parents and Guardians. Is your child finding it difficult to meet today's seemingly infinite academic demands? We have a solution for you. Our sponsor, the JEI Learning Center, believes that all children have unlimited learning potential. JEI's worldwide scientific educational system provides a learning program based on each child's individual needs and ability. The JEI Learning Center effectively meets your child's academic needs with well-qualified instructors, combined with a proven method and low student-to-instructor ratio, thus making JEI the best option for your child's educational needs. Given that JEI is aligned with state and common core curriculum, the JEI system is your solution to end your child's struggles or to advance your child in math, reading, and language arts. Visit our sponsor at www.jeilearning.com. For those near Santa Clara and Livermore, make sure to ask for the Pod Save the Rest of Us discount. Sign up today and begin to carve out the future your child deserves. Easy go and easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Welcome, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners. You're listening to Elizabeth Stanley. I, along with Karen Castro, bring you Season 3, Two Roads. We drew inspiration for this season from Robert Foss's poem, The Road Not Taken. Given that we're all hunkered down, sheltered in place, it seems likely that most of us are taking stock in who and what we value. Once free, what do we really want to do with our precious time? Throughout season three, you will hear 10 stories of individuals who, on their life's path, realized that maybe, just maybe, the road less traveled was the difference their lives needed. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, thank you for tuning in. This is part two of David, A Military Life for Me. If you have not listened to part one, you'll want to stop now, go listen to the epic beginning of the story, and then return to the final conclusion of how a soldier found his way back home to his family. In this episode, we pick up when David explains the demons he battled, even in his sleep, which nearly cost him to take his very own life. Please note, this episode contains graphic content, and it may be triggering for some. Please use your discretion. Also, if you or anyone you know has suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the suicide hotline. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, their number is 1-800-273-8255. Thank you. We hope you enjoy this episode. I was drinking a lot. I, I became heavily into alcohol. I mean, I was at the liquor store, I think every other day, buying a 30-pack of beer and a bottle of gin almost every other day. And I was spending somewhere like close to like $600 a month on alcohol. And that was to suppress my feelings, my emotions, the shit that I did to my family. It was to just suppress that. I went through a bad season for about a year. Um, 
almost killed myself. Story behind that. Um, in Indiana, I had a concealed carry permit. Um, at nighttime, I would keep my gun next to me. And I had a horrible dream. Horrible. Um, I'm a very physical person. If I can't handle the situation physically, I don't know what to do at that point. So in my dream, I'm battling someone and it was like a, it was like a demon. I just couldn't seem to get my hands on this individual and everything that had gone wrong in my life was just being thrown in my face in my dream. And in my dream, I'm just fighting to stay alive in my dream because I got so fed up that I couldn't physically do it anymore. I couldn't inflict harm or protect myself that I ended up in my dream reaching for my gun and putting it to my head and pulling the trigger. That's when I woke up and I shit you not, my gun was to my head. Every night when I went to bed, now I don't know if this is an act of God or what, every night when I went to bed, I always had at the time my gun loaded. And there were factors for why, okay? Where everything started to spiral for me big time on recruiting duty, and I know I'm going back a little bit here, I was gifted for my in-laws a 1987 Buick Grand National. That was my dream car. My in-laws owned one. They gifted that to me. That was my favorite car I ever had. That was the only car I ever wanted. They had one. They gifted it to me. In Indiana, this was... May of 2016, so we had been in Indiana for six, seven months now. That car was stolen from my recruiting office. I drove it to my office, which I never did because of the area it was located. It was the bad part of town, but I had to drive it there this day because my government vehicle was at that office. Drove it up there, ran inside to grab my computer and some cables because I had to go to a training. I was in there for 30 minutes, came out, car was gone. At that point in time, I feel like my world had just been stripped from me because I had, I mean, again, that was my favorite car. I had items in there that I was gifted for Father's Day. It was like a coffee mug with pictures of my son and I on it. Um, I I had a bag that I was gifted from a British soldier in there that I used daily. I was gifted a couple items from some of the Danish special ops guys that I worked with. I just had a lot of memorabilia in there that I carried on me daily in that vehicle. And it was just taken from me. Um, You never got any of it back. Never got any of it back. I felt like my life had been robbed at that point. And that is when I spiraled into my darkness um, during that season. Fast forward to this dream. Garage door opener address of where I lived was all in that car. So I would sleep with my gun loaded just in case anything ever happened. That night when I went to bed, probably because I was too drunk, maybe I didn't do it. I didn't put one in the chamber just in case. So I don't know if that's a sign. I mean, I, I'm a big believer, so I believe so. Wake up. That happened. Had that that dream woke up to a gun in my head. At that point in time, I realized something was wrong. Three days later, I'm back to drinking and just being stupid. Megan and Kaysen 
because Megan was fed up with my shit. She moves back to Indiana. Says, you know what? This is my fucking house too. I'm not leaving anymore. You leave. So I ended up living out of a hotel. Um, didn't really, I didn't see them. I didn't really see Kason. Megan would say, hey, Thursday I'm going out to go do something. I need you to come by the house and watch your son. Okay. Right, I would do that, and then I'd have to say bye, buddy, as I'm leaving. And he's upstairs in his bedroom window because it faced the front yard. He's crying, screaming for daddy because he doesn't understand why daddy's not living there at this time go back to the hotel room and just get obliterated and then wake up and go to work Megan was persistent during my season she was persistent in pursuing me and just loving me even though I know she was fed up with my antics she was persistent in just loving and caring for me. I think, well, I know, ultimately, that's what got me out of my bad season. I always knew Megan was, like I said earlier, a ride or die. She never displayed such courage love um, support than she did in that time of our life I mean I was trying to I mean I contacted a lawyer thinking about divorce I mean I was I was just off the rocker Megan would look at me and be like this isn't how this is supposed to be like I know I'm supposed to be with you that's just what God has in the plans for us so until you make the move and sign divorce papers and bring them to me, I'm staying. So she put the ball in my court. And I loved her to death. I did. I just knew I was in a dark place. And I loved our boy. Eventually one night I woke up in the hotel that I was staying at. I just kind of woke up in a cold sweat. Sounds cliche. But just woke up in a cold sweat and... uh I realized I had to just unfuck myself, basically. That's the best way to put it. I asked Meg if I could move back in. She said yes, but of course there were still conditions. Um, and really about April, May of oof, uh, 17, that's when her and I started growing together. Because, mind you, for a good year and a half, two years, we were going apart. And on recruiting duty, like I said, I was like, oh, you know, I'm being told by people that are within my command, fuck the family, just worry about recruiting duty. Copy, okay. I was stupid enough to really do that at the time, but I was so blinded by everything that was happening around me. So, okay, so that's what I did. I just pushed my family away, drank. Because that was like the cool thing to do, right? I was easily influenced at that time in my life. Easily. And prior to that, I wasn't very easily influenced. I would be the one on the sidelines being like, nah, man, I'm not doing that shit. Heck no. Y'all, you guys are stupid. But I fell in. Like, I, I just fell for it. 
that was some of the darkest times. I had to open up to Meg about a lot of things, um, things I experienced, things I went through personally for myself, not in regards to our relationship and what we were going through, but myself as an individual, right, and how I just hadn't dealt with things. Recruiting duty was just a whole different ballgame. And again, I don't regret it. Everything happens for a reason. I think that in itself propelled Meg and I to where we are today. Like, we went through some really dark times to come out on top and be where we are now. Okay, so you went through this dark period. You were in Indiana, but now you're in California, Mm -hmm. and you see light. Mm Mm-hmm. Where's this light going to lead you, and how did you end up in California? So when it came time for me to get done with the Marine Corps, I knew probably a year into recruiting duty. I was done after this enlistment, and I knew I was done in January of 2019. I was done, period. January of 2018, Megan and I were growing, getting back on track together as a, as a, as a marriage or a married couple. Um, we knew come January where we're getting out. We had this, she had this wild idea. Let's sell our home. Let's sell everything. Buy a trailer. Travel cross country back to California. Because ultimately California was where we wanted to end up. Because we had been away from friends and family for almost nine years now. California was where we wanted to end up. So we worked up all of 2018 for that goal in January when I got out. Fast forward, we ended up trading in our vehicle. We got a truck that would be able to pull a trailer. We spent months researching the type of trailer we wanted, found a trailer, put our house on the market. It sold within like a week. Um, had another son? Yes, we had another son along the way. Wow. Um, I can't believe I forgot that. Yeah, so... In our tough times, our tough season, we had two miscarriages back to back in the second trimester. In the second trimester, so in 2016 and 2017, one in July, one in September, we had two miscarriages. The first one, we didn't really know Meg was pregnant at the time. Come to find out, she was pregnant. She had that miscarriage. That was horrific in itself. The way that all played out, and Kason was there for that. He witnessed everything that happened it was just us we had no friends or family out there that one was scarring second one find out that she's pregnant find a doctor ultra you know ultrasounds everything's good we tell Kason, hey you're gonna have a baby brother a baby sister we go in in one appointment to hear the heart and there's no heart beat anymore that destroyed us and now we have to tell Kason. It's funny how, like, composed a four-year-old can be. Hey, uh, buddy, remember how we told you mommy had a baby growing in her belly? Well, now there's no heartbeat. Um, that baby is now in heaven. And he just goes, oh, yeah, I know, with the first baby. Yeah, yeah, buddy, with, with, with the first baby. So... Fast forward, Megan gets pregnant with Dominic. Megan 
we we went to a specialist. We found out that her DNA was basically attacking my DNA and killing it off. That's what caused the miscarriages. So Megan had to give herself two shots of heparin a day, one on her one on each side of her belly, for 37 weeks, on top of taking baby aspirin as a blood thinner. I don't know. I don't remember exactly how that all affects the body, but it was it, it pretty much, from my understanding, suppressed her immune system enough to allow the baby to grow. September 2018, we have Dominic. He's brought into this world. We are static because we just had two miscarriages back to back. We had Dominic. Kason's excited. We're all excited. So now our family is of four plus two dogs. We sell our home quickly. Closing date is like April. So we have a couple months to kind of renovate the trailer that we bought and sell almost everything we owned. We were, we were able to accomplish all that with just the four of us. Um, before we move after the military, mm -hmm. you moved around. And most of the time, it was just you, Megan... And then son one comes and son two comes. And, and essentially, you're all alone on this journey trying to grow up, be a man, be a, be a soldier, and be a husband, and do the right thing. And you and, and your wife, Megan, are both essentially on this little island, if you will, by yourself. So here you have your military family, but all your real hardcore connections and the people that you lean on and help you in life your real you know your actual family and your friends mm -hmm. they're not with you anymore what was that like um i think that was one of the most difficult difficult scenarios about the military in regards to yes i have my quote unquote military family but what's even crazy about that is even when I got to my first unit, the unit I touched on earlier, you know, the 2nd Intel Battalion, even that in itself didn't feel like a family. Our close group of friends back here home, that was my foundation in regards to support and love and connection. When I joined the Marine Corps, I couldn't find that with the other Marines. So... Going to Lejeune, just Megan and I, that was tough. Then Indiana came, got uprooted, left the church that we were attending and we were starting to build a community in. We got ripped from that and got sent to Indiana. Went to Indiana and it was literally just Megan, Kaysen, and I. But then when it came, in, but then when it came down to uh, support, my recruiting unit, my recruiting station that I was with, my substation. Um, they preached family, but it wasn't family. It, 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 like No one could replace what we have here in Cali. So when it came time to other relationships, we felt like no one really measured up or we just saw differently eye to eye. So with that being said, when things got tough for Meg and I, i.e. my horrible dark season where I just shoved her and Kaysen away from me, to then experiencing our first miscarriage. Um, this will get a little gruesome in detail, but it's the best way I know to exp I know how to explain 
what it's like to not have support in a different state. Megan was in the second trimester of our first miscarriage when that occurred. We were at home. Her and I were in an argument. Next thing I know, she's saying that she doesn't, you know, something feels off, doesn't feel good. She starts saying that she's experiencing pain in her stomach area. And she had a hunch that she was having a miscarriage. Well, we don't have grandma, grandpa, aunties, uncles to call on. Uh, We had nobody to call. So I tell Meg, right, we got to go to the hospital. Hospital was only a mile away from where we lived. As we're going downstairs, she's hunched over crying because she's in fear of losing a baby. We get downstairs. I'm trying to get Kaysen's backpack ready because we have to take him to the hospital with us. Megan is standing in our living room by the window, by the couch, and I'm trying to get Kaysen gathered up. And all I hear is a loud gasp. And I turn the corner and enter the living room, and she's there standing with her hands over her mouth in a puddle of blood. Um, at that moment in time, obviously we knew it was, uh, it, it was serious. So, okay. I see the blood. I know I can't stop the bleeding in regards to this. Cause that's just what's part of a miscarriage. So I know that, but I know that I got to get that cleaned up before my, that this time he was almost three. Got to get this cleaned up before my three-year-old son sees his mom standing in a puddle of blood. Just grab a towel, throw it on the ground. Megan is trying not to overly... uh, She's not trying to cry too much in front of her son because she doesn't want to worry him. We get everything taken care of. We get everybody loaded up in the vehicle. We drive to the hospital. As we're driving, we never put Kaysen on an iPad, iPhone, or anything like that. At this point, we had an iPad, gave him an iPad, just put on some random cartoons for him to watch. We brought a bunch of his Hot Wheels because he loved Hot Wheels at that moment. We get to the ER. We get in. We tell the front desk lady, hey, my wife is actively having a miscarriage. Grabbed a wheelchair, put Megan in it. The doctors came out, brought us into a room. As we get in there, they're attending to Megan. Megan is still crying. I'm trying to get Kaysen set up on a chair, but I'm trying to get him to a point where he's not visually seeing what is happening right now because it's just us. I don't want him to see his mom going through the process of having a miscarriage and having to get cleaned up. They tell her, hey, we need you to change. Take off your clothing and put on the amazing gown that they give you. So I'm helping her. This is where it gets graphic. I help Megan take off her pants. And as we take off her pants, the baby falls into her pants. At that moment in time, Megan just lost it. At that moment, Meg was on the other side of the bed, so Kaysen couldn't see what had happened. I saw what had happened, and... Seeing, I'm not trying to compare what I've seen in the past through my deployments 
and how those don't amount to what I just saw, right? Like death is death. But seeing an unborn baby at 16 weeks is just another, I, I don't know how to explain it. That, that in itself is just an eye opener. Um, so, uh, baby is out. I get into the hallway and I call the nurses and I say, the baby is, uh, we need help. The baby's not in there anymore. That's basically what I'm trying to tell them. So they rush in, they assist, still trying to get Kaysen taken care of and making sure he's okay while trying to attend to Megan and Megan's trying to make sure Kaysen's okay and this and that. So they get the baby taken care of, put into a, a bowl to clean it, to clean the baby off. We get brought upstairs. Megan has to do a DNC. So to get her placenta and everything taken out. Kaysen and I are downstairs in the waiting room. And that's the first time I've had to let Megan go in a hospital by herself. And of course I'm with my son. I know it's just a DNC. But where I'm at mentally at that point in time, I was in a dark season. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to be punished for the decisions I made. And now it's stupid as this may sound like am I going to be punished now Megan's going to be taken away from me and now it's just Kaysen and I like all these weird thoughts were just going through my mind thankfully it was just a DNC simple procedure Megan is okay we're told you can go see her so we go upstairs we see Megan still can't at this point I had to call my station commander and let him know what happened and he was like okay well if you need anything just let me know. You know, not like a, hey, where you at? We'll come. Hey, what do you need help with? It was just a, oh, okay, well, just, sorry to hear that, type thing. Right. Um, Which is so different than if we were home and that happened, right? First of all, Kaysen would have been gone with somebody instantly. Like, we would have called our friend Selena. She would have been there in a blink of an eye to take care of Kaysen. Like, there would have been just so much more support in that circumstance. So as soon as that happened, Megan, she didn't go into her own little dark phase. But at this point in time, she was like, fuck it. You want to keep acting stupid, David? Then I'm just going to throw my hands up and just say, forget it. Her and I eventually went through a building process. Got pregnant again. We had informed Kate, Meg and I decided, hey, at what point in time do we let Kaysen know, hey, you're going to be a brother? I don't remember at what point in time we decided, hey, we'll tell him, but we did. And then we went in at the 15-week, 16-week mark during the second trimester. We didn't bring Kaysen with us because we wanted him to not be there in case anything happened. We go in there to do an ultrasound. Doctor's looking for a heartbeat. It's taking longer than it usually has. Megan looks at me. I look at her. And then she just started to cry. And our doctor at the time had said, uh, we can't find a heartbeat. So <laughs> we waited, I think, a week before Megan had to do another DNC to get the fetus and everything out.
So we waited a week and then we did that. <clears throat> Again, don't really have anybody to call. Hey, can you watch Kaysen? I gotta take Meg to the hospital at seven o'clock in the morning to get this procedure done. There's nobody to call. We Kaysen wasn't in daycare because Megan was a stay-at-home mom, so we didn't have it. He didn't go to a daycare or anything. I have nowhere near to help out. So that left a sour taste in my mouth, um, and I haven't overcome that. But Marines who get stationed far away from their home state, it's tough. It's fucking tough to not have the support that you're used to, especially in situations that Megan and I had experienced. It's tough. It, 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 it was tough. It was tough. How much longer after that second serious miscarriage, um, profound sense of loss, mm -hmm. was Megan able to carry Dominic to full term? Second miscarriage happened in September. I think it was September 11th, the second miscarriage. Quite, quite the date. Um, September 11th was our second miscarriage. September 11th of 2017. December, January. So December of 18, of 17, January. December of 17, January 18. We had conceived Dominic. We had, excuse me, we had to go through a process, a process of giving Megan a shot. I had to give a, sh I had to give her a shot in her butt cheek to help with her ovulation or to make her eggs more fertile, more fertile. And then a few weeks later we went in and I think we ran a blood test or something like that and she was pregnant. So from that moment for 37 weeks, she was giving herself the two shots of heparin and the baby aspirin because we had gone to a specialist and they had, he had identified that her DNA, her immune system, was attacking my DNA as a foreign object. That's what we found out, and her DNA was attacking mine. So the heparin and the baby aspirin for 37 weeks suppressed her immune system enough to allow our DNAs to make Dominic. So let's back up just a little. Yeah. Your you're having marital issues mm -hmm. and you're trying to have a baby. So, okay. Very, very good point. So by, the, by this time, yeah, cause that just sounds like a messed up relationship. <laughs> so yeah, I should probably back that one up a little bit. I'll try to go on a time frame here. So my bad season. And I remember it like it was yesterday was May 16th of 2016. That's when my car got stolen. That's when everything that's, that's, that's when shit hit the fan for me. From then until July of 17, Meg and I were on the rocks. Like, like the woof. It, it, was, it was just a trip. I eventually snapped out of my stupidness. Um couldn't have been as easy i just snap out of it you know? no it wasn't so there was there was a lot that went into it what i give credit to the most and i apologize if i 
turn any listeners away is going to church. Around this time frame, June, July of 17, Megan said, hey, there's a church. I want to go to it. Would you like to come? I said, yeah, sure. Whatever. Because I was raised Catholic, but I didn't really believe in Catholicism growing up. Because in the church, they're preaching this and that. At home, I'm being taught a completely different way. Like I'm getting my hand, like I'm getting hands put on me. I'm getting spanked by belt. I'm being screamed at, being grounded for weeks on end. Right. So like, okay. Like, yeah, parents got a divorce. I'm being told that this is what life should be like, but I'm not living that. So I thought, so I thought, the Catholic religion was just a, was just a joke. Big hypocrisy. Yeah. I'll go. I knew I needed something. the pastor at that church if there's anybody listening from Indiana City Life Church Pastor Mike Wiggin is the best pastor I've ever heard that day when we went to church everything he preached I looked at Meg every time and I asked her I was like did you write him did you let him know what's going on because everything that man preached was everything I was battling with. Every, like, everything. From not feeling worthy, to feeling bad about myself, to not knowing where I needed to go in life, to wanting to kill myself, to wanting to divorce, pushing family away. I mean, he summed up everything I had gone through in a whole year in 60 minutes. And it floored me. I looked at Meg multiple times and I asked, I was like, did you email him? Because I felt like... He, I felt like I literally preaching to you. I felt I'm I'm not kidding. I felt set up. I felt like she asked me to go in a very non-casual way, expecting me not to go. But I did because she emailed them. Like I seriously thought she emailed them. And later on, after we got involved with the church, I started attending weekly men's groups at Tuesday mornings at six o'clock. If you know me, I'm not a wake up early kind of guy. So that wasn't going to work, but I still did it because I enjoyed it. So from that, from that moment when we went to church on top of me waking up in the hotel room in cold sweats, thinking this shit just has to stop from the hotel to the church. It it was, it, it sounds so simple, but it was like a, I just need to do better. So it was as simple as. I need to change. I have to change. I'm going to change. What actionable steps do I need to take to get there? And with support and the encouragement and the love for Megan, because she was in the same boat, but she was a little further than I was in regards to that. She helped me in more ways than I can explain. And I don't give her enough credit even to this day. I, I, I think that's just, it's not right. It was as simple as I need to change, but the process wasn't easy. There was a lot of self-reflecting. There was a lot of coming to grips with what I did and not shaming myself and feeling guilt. Because for a long time, I felt like I was nothing for Megan after that point. I felt like what I had done in the pain I put her and Kaysen through, how could they ever forgive me? How could I forgive myself? 
And that was really hard for me to deal with. I, that I think was my biggest hiccup was, well, shit. I feel like dog crap for that. Imagine how they feel. I can't forgive myself. There's no way they forgive me. I mean, my son, he's, he was too young at the time. He probably will never remember that. I, I, I hope. But how could she forgive me? But then going through church and learning and you know, we all have sins. We all sin. And then just understanding that no matter what, there is at least one individual who forgives me and who loves me. And that's got to be enough. And once I came to grips with that, I was able to then forgive myself. And then even though Meg was already telling me she forgave me, right, I wasn't able to believe that she forgave me. So let's talk about this dark period uh, a little. Um, obviously, that dark, dark period is PTSD. And that's more common in soldiers than we would like to admit. And, you know, you, you talk about, you know, it's just... Um, it's, I guess the word is, it's not manly enough to, to admit that I'm hurting and I've got troubles and my mind is racing and all these thoughts and, and worse off all these images and I don't know how to process it. And we don't, we, as a society, my personal opinion is that we don't spend enough time teaching each other how to get through shit so so that ptsd um period i mean i I don't i guess that's that's an ignorant statement it's not a period it's it's there and how did you face it and how do you face it because it's got to be with you you don't unsee um heads in a dead person's lap you don't unsee that You don't unsee your your unborn child on the floor. You don't unsee that, and you have to process it. So, what gets you through that? How 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 are you dealing with a lifelong journey through PTSD? Because the childhood uh, experiences that you've had those those were neglected. We neglect ourselves all the time emotionally. Um, and you're carrying this into, in, into adult life, those childhood images and feelings and et cetera, into an adult life of I'm seeing people dying around me and I feel responsible for some of this and I have to keep everybody safe and I'm just not as capable as I'd like to believe and as certainly not as much as people need and I have a family that that's asking way too much. And then we don't provide enough support and emotional um, training and I, I don't know there's just so much and and when did you realize I got to deal with this and how do you deal with it yeah so I'll kind of answer in waves here in regards to the support that we receive while in or when we get out I feel like, and this is just from my own personal experience, I feel like the Marine Corps is very selective on who should get the help. And what I mean by that is, right, like in the Marine Corps, everything's a measuring contest, right? You have a limb blown off. Okay, sure, we'll provide you some support. 
What'd you go through? Oh, you just saw a ton of dead people and had to examine dead bodies for bombs. And you're always aware, hypervigilant, always on alert, never present in the moment type thing. Oh, okay. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Nah, just go on. Right. When it comes time, I remember when I was leaving Afghanistan, I had to sit down with a Navy corpsman, and they ask you a bunch of questions. And, you know, did you see anything? What would you do? Blah, blah, blah. I have any issues. They ask you a question. Did you ever see any dead bodies? Yes. How many? I said 72. The doctor kind of looked at me. He's like, would you keep count? I was like, I did. I did. He's like, okay, well, that's crazy. Next question, right? Not like a, well, shit. How are you doing with that? Because I, I recently, I think last week or the week before, I f- just told Meg for the first time, and I forgot how we got on this topic. And it was when we were going to pick up Kaysen from school. I don't remember how we got on it. But I told her, I was like, there's not a day that goes by still where I don't picture one of the many dead bodies that I had attended to, right? It, it could just be something as simple as I'm going to grab something from the closet and I catch a whiff or um, maybe I hear or I move a certain way or maybe I go to hop in the truck, but I go to hop in the truck, but I don't get in all the way because I feel like I heard my buddy Dylan calling my name to come look at a body. So like, there's all these moments that kind of bring me back to then. So there's not a day that goes by where I don't think of it. Um, I don't think the Marine Corps, I should say the military, not just the Marine Corps, because that's, that's not fair. I don't think the military does enough for when you're getting out, right? When you join the Marine Corps or join the military, you go through however many weeks of training before you can then graduate and then join the ranks. Then your follow-on schools. When it's time to check out of the military, I'll just say Marine Corps because that's what I came from, you go to a week course that's called separations, and you're just given, excuse me, you're given a veteran affairs book that's like 200 pages two like 200 pages thick and you for that whole week you basically speed read through it trying to highlight shit if you can on where you should go to get help and this whole course is just to get a check in the box to then get out of the marine corps this is just a check in the box to get your dd214 stating your time is done so like that's it that's all they do. I feel like coming out of the military, more should be done. Okay, I gave you a year worth of training. Maybe, depending on individual state of mind, there should be a certain amount of time that they need to, or you, the military, should give to that individual on how to decompress and how to re-enter civilian life. Hey, what issues do you have? Well, I just picture dead people all the time and this and that. Okay. And then work with you on how to, not overcome it, but how to cope with that, right? How to go through day-to-day, like how to go through day-to-day dealing with that. But they don't. But I feel like they should. So then when we get out of the military, we're not all fucking cuckoo. 
just being thrown back into this thrown back into the lifestyle of being a civilian like we're just thrown back into it with the hypervigilant mind yeah so me i struggle with hypervigilance i am okay let me back up i was extremely hypervigilant i mean it was to the point where wherever we lived i'd put a nightlight outside our bedroom door so as i'm laying there in bed staring at the door at the bottom of the door the crack i can see the light and i can see if there's a shadow coming because we lived on an afghan base I had windows to my room. They weren't bulletproof windows. They weren't barricaded, right? So at any point in time, an Afghan coach just broke in my window. Again, the fear of the unknown, like when is it going to happen type thing because of 2012, the most green on blue incidences occurred. So that fear of the unknown, like, okay, is it going to be today? Like just always hypervigilant, just always wondering, always looking, assessing everywhere we go. Um, trust, trust is a big thing because of my unit I deployed with and situations I was put in my recruiting unit. Trust is a big thing. I don't, I have, I have very little trust in human or in human, in humanity. I have very little trust and that's sad, right? Cause I don't want to give, like, I don't want that to then bleed into my son's life. I don't want him to feel like that. I don't want Kaysen to grow up distrusting mankind, right? He should love life. Life is beautiful. As uh, um, I've, I've, I've known before, dark time, coming out of it, understanding that. But I don't want him to grow up like that. Trust, hypervigilance, emotionless was a big thing. I already went into the military not really showing emotions because of how I was raised. So I always gave the analogy i'm just like a coke bottle you just keep shaking me up shaking me up but the lid is on there nothing's coming out but as soon as you open me up a little bit like it's it's going everywhere like i just i just blow up but i'm emotionless i just don't show emotion and that's something that i've been trying to work through because for the longest time casein would ask me daddy are you mad I'm like no i'm not mad buddy why well you look mad I got a four-year-old asking me this question. Like, man, I'm not mad. Leave me alone in my mind. But obviously my face must be expressing something to a four-year-old to the point where he can read that and then ask me, are you mad? So now I'm telling him, no, I'm not mad. What message am I sending to my son? We as a society already raised men, I mean, with, I mean, it ends up being toxic masculinity and the military just seems to pour fuel to that fire. Yes, I would highly agree that my generation coming up and even a little bit of Megan's, I mean, she was born in 85, I'm 88, so I'm like the, I'm like the millennial group. She and I, Megan and I, were raised by moms who had a distrust for men. So Megan was taught one thing about men. I wasn't really taught anything about men. I was just taught that I'm a piece of shit. Sweet. And that's not and that's not my mom's fault by any means. She was doing what she could with two kids trying to survive. My mom's done well. Her way of expressing emotions, 
expressing herself at the time was physical. And that's all I knew. I didn't know how to use my words to express myself. I just knew to punch holes in the wall. And they get in trouble for that. So, yes. <laughs> I think my generation and a, and a little bit before were brought up by women who were raised by single moms, were brought up by women who, who distrusted men. And that was put onto us. And now our self-esteem, our character is somewhat battered by that and we don't know what to do but you have a lot of strong independent women right like selena megan right like they're strong independent women but the men from that but the men from that same generation are the complete opposite right so like when i met meg she was strong independent about to finish her bachelor's degree i was just some dude who likes to fight and i was just going to work because I didn't know what else to do with my life. I would agree that in today's world, yes, the whole toxicity of what it is to be a man. If I was asked that question now, or okay, if I was asked that question then, what would it be? It would be what you said, right? Someone who, a man who doesn't show emotion, doesn't buckle under fear, is tough, Provides for his family and just kind of get shit done. Today, if you were to ask me what my definition of a man is, I would say one who just loves the shit out of his family. One who just loves his wife, who loves his kids, who was there to be there for them in any way, not just physical, right, but emotionally. Like my son, Kaysen, is... Me being emotionless and then him being not emotional, but having strong emotions. Oh, man, that is a battle. But he teaches me so much about how to just allow him to express emotions and then for me to do the same with him. Right. So my definition today would be just someone who just loves the shit out of his family, provides for his family. Right. It's really just boiled down to that. Just love your family. And provide for them. You don't have to be some big macho guy. I know many men who didn't join the military or whatever. And they have certain jobs. But they're great men. They love their family. They provide for their family. There's always a smile. That's what I think manliness is. Yes, you can still be tough and all that. But you've got to be able to love. you got to be able to show emotion. you got to be able to let those that love you. you got to be able to let them in your heart. And let them affect you just how you should affect them so did you go to therapy or just your process of truly embracing the church and being present for your family within all those constructs just the church and being present our pastor in indiana he was very big on challenging us on a weekly basis um and Meg and I really took to that. We tried to take them up on those challenges, whatever they may be. Like, try to tell your spouse every day something you like about them, right? Or something you like about yourself. Or something that you need to do to feel better. 
we took those weekly challenges. I never did therapy. I guess I was kind of ignorant to it, thinking I don't need to talk to anybody about my shit. Because I tried one time and I was shut down, so why would I try again? Clearly, I don't have an issue. <laughs> but then through my process, um, I saw a psychiatrist, explained to her everything I went through. And, I mean, she's telling me that that was unfair and unjust of that one, the wizard from Pendleton, to tell me that I had no issues while the lady I'm seeing recently is saying yeah I think you do have issues I'm like yes they may not be on the same playing field as other individuals that I've talked to but what you experienced and what you went through I don't think I've heard anything like that because that's just a it's just crazy you're told to not wear body armor and to not carry a bigger caliber weapon you're told to inspect dead bodies for bombs you're picking up dead bodies you're traveling with dead bodies you're surrounded by afghans not knowing what bag or what individual has a bomb on them like yeah of course that will fuck with your psyche so she agrees that i have ptsd and that was kind of weird for me to like admit yeah admit and in that and it's not because I'm trying to be like, oh, I don't, I shouldn't have it. It's just because, again, I know people who went, like, I'll use my cousin, for example, right? My cousin, he joined the Marine Corps after high school back when Iraq was real big, doing the initial push. He did three tours back-to-back in his four years. He was with 2-8 Golf Company. He was blown up off a building. He saw his best friend get shot between the eyes. The cousin I knew during the Marine Corps and before the Marine Corps, I love that dude. I still love him, but I love that guy. After the Marine Corps, in in and out of jail, drugs. And I think it all stems from his time in, because there's been many times when him and I were together before I went off to the Marine Corps, where him and I would, you know a young age get drunk hang out talk whatever bs and he'd, you'd, you'd get him to that point where he'd be drunk enough and he would just break down start talking about what happened he would start calling me his buddy's name who he saw get shot right so i know individuals who really experienced some shit like experienced legitimate combat and are forever changed so for me, again, to put myself in the same category, it just doesn't feel right for me. That's not saying, again, like I'm better than them or anything. It's just, it, just, it just doesn't feel right. Maybe it doesn't seem fair. Yeah, it doesn't seem fair because... But David, we're, no one is built for death all around us. No one is built for having to worry about it every second of your own life, let alone feel responsible for other people's lives. That no one's built for that. No amount of training is going to prepare us for the damage that it's going to have on our minds. It, there's just there's nothing in life that that equates to that, and fairly so. Imagine if we all went through that. That it's just it's it's unfair. Yeah. Yeah. Very definition of insanity. Yes, for sure. 
so for me to come to grips with acknowledging that I have PTSD, it just felt weird mm -hmm. to agree with that. Did you feel a sense of weakness? No. Okay. Good. No. I, I think before I would have. And Meg and I talk a lot. She forces me to talk. I mean, it's funny because me sitting here with you talking is the m most I've talked probably in the last week. So before I would have thought of it as being weak, no doubt. I don't know if that was in some cocky way or what, but I never looked at others with PTSD as being weak. I think I just looked at myself as being weak. But now as I've, in 2015 to 2018 on recruiting duty, that was just the whirlwind. Dark season, miscarriages, car getting stolen with a lot of memorabilia in there. I mean, it was just, it was just a trip. So it was just one thing after another. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself weak. I would say that now that I'm aware that it's good because now I know, okay, I always wondered. Now it's just being confirmed and that's okay. Like, like that doesn't diminish who I am. That doesn't take away from my character that I have PTSD. I think if anything, it makes me more, this sounds weird to say, more relatable. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of people who probably have experienced some form of PTSD. It doesn't have to be from combat, right? It could be from getting into a car accident or from Meg when she got out of the truck and broke her ankle. So now every time she gets out of the truck, she looks to make sure there's no hole, right? There's so many different forms of PTSD. It's not just combat related. But people don't really conversate about their experiences until you or I start to open up about it in an open discussion with people. And then three of the seven people are like, dude, I struggle with that, right? So I think if anything, it just makes, I feel like it could be more more relatable to people. It kind of builds a bridge. Between like community them. and yeah. commonality. Exactly. Oh, okay. Well, let, let's stay with that. Given that it is more common than we would like to think, what advice would you give to others in regards to dealing with just their day in, day out? We see stuff, we go through stuff. How, how do we get through it without just, just suck it up? Walk it off, rub some dirt on it. I think that's old school mentality. I think in some ways it is it it can be applied to certain things, maybe. I don't know. But for the most part, if you if you've experienced some form of it, that's okay. That's life. Right? Like that's just life. You were fortunate enough in a really messed up way to think about it. You were fortunate enough to experience something that propels you to a newer you, hopefully. Right? So now you know what your threshold is in regards to pain, struggle, whatever the case is. I think it just toughens you. People don't look at it like that. They look at it as they may be weak. But I think what people need to understand is if you have a form of PTSD, that's, that's fine. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you're any less of a person. I think if anything, if you harness it the right way, it can make you a stronger person and to be there for others. 
you just got to understand what happened depending on where your belief system is what happened isn't your fault i believe everything happens for a reason i i've i've just always been a free floater like that just not a free spirit but i like to think of it as such everything happens for a reason you can't dictate everything that happens in your life so you can learn from it exactly you can learn from it like dang that happened okay that's not my fault that's okay but i'm still gonna go out there and just do great things i'm still gonna love still gonna care still gonna support still gonna smile laugh live my life whatever your method of dealing with it is is i like to work out that helps me relieve myself um i like guns so i like going to the shooting range um being with my boys and my wife i've learned to really enjoy that i've learned to really just live in the moment with them and not be so hyper vigilant because what i've come to realize is no matter how hyper vigilant i may be i can't be everywhere at one time so now that you're you traveled all the way back here and um you're transitioning to a true civilian life Mm -hmm. what do you what is, what is your professional ambition? Well, I think I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to identify what that may be. I'm, I'm, I think what every military, not, okay, I lied, not every, I think what a majority of military members struggle with when they get out of the service is what their purpose is. While in, you're just giving orders and just nod your head, aye, aye, sir, whatever, and you just push and you do whatever needs to be done getting out without that structure shit what do i do currently i'm going to las positas and i'm back into the firefighting program um working my way through that i just started up again um i almost got my i'm half i was halfway through my bachelor's degree in homeland security stopped that transferred to Las po pursuing firefighting I've hit this point in, in in my firefighting course where I'm trying to figure out if, if this is what I really want. I think based off my personality type, um, I want to help people, right? So whether that's firefighting or some other method, I'm not sure. I just know I like to help others in whatever fashion that may be. Megan and I have been really trying to narrow that down in regards to what it is my purpose is and who is my purpose for. Like, what group of people is it for? Um, That's what currently we are trying to figure out. And we're currently trying to figure out if up here in the Bay Area is the best place for us. I think it is. (laughs) All right, my final question. Yeah. What do you hope later on, I mean, you know, we've talked about your perceptions when you were young about your parents. What do you hope your sons say about you? So they're sitting down. I'm having a conversation with them. I'm still 28, but they're 28 also. Right, I can see that. (laughs) I can see that. What do you you hope they say about you and, um, you know, their observations and, you know, what you've meant for them? Um... Pardon me while I get a little choked up about that. Um, it's it's. You have to say pardon me if you didn't. 
I know. I, okay. You know, it's... I think as we've touched on, like, what the definition of manlyhood is, right? It's changed for me. Before, I'd want my sons to think a, a certain way. Now, what I would hope they say is... My dad was there for me, period, point blank. He loved on us. Um, he loved our mom. And he just tried to just live his life the best he could for us, through us. Um, I want them to know that a life is tough, but that's life. You shouldn't let it break you. Everything is possible. I want them to be able to build a relationship with God and know that even if mom and dad are gone one day, that there's still someone who will be there for them in a spiritual manner. Um, yeah, I just, I would just hope that they would say that my dad loved us and was there for us and was an extremely like hands-on in a good way, like wanted to be a part of our life, period. I'm just trying to give them what I didn't get from my dad. So. Let me actually add another one. What do you hope your wife says about you someday? She's probably rolling her eyes right now about that question. Because <laughs> she knows me. I could just say something completely random. Um, come on, coach. You can't hit me with that one. <laughs> All right. Let, no, let no, 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 no. Let me lead you Okay. I mean, I got an answer, but. My first, I didn't know who you were or anything, and I just heard through, actually, uh, through Laura, like, oh, this guy, Megan Stady, he actually literally and physically in every way saved Megan's life because she was falling, and he just reached out and grabbed her from falling off a cliff mm -hmm. and held on to her and saved her life. My guess is you want her to know that that's who you are for her and that's who she is for you. Yes. I would want her to know if we could just sum up our life in that moment when we first started dating. Is even though it was me saving her or her saving me we're not letting go perfect period that's it we hope you enjoyed this episode which was engineered and produced by elizabeth stanley and karen castro we want to thank all our guests whose open and honest responses shaped another great season as always we need to thank our listeners whose support means so much to us Additionally, we must thank our great contributors for their music, Hunter Lewis, Robert Stanley, Danny Burns, and Alejandro of Drobeats. We also need to thank Justice Stanley for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for web design, St. Hall for graphic artwork, and our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bars, and the JEI Learning Center. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website, podsavetherestofus.com, as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus, and on the Twitter at savetherestofus. 
We'd like to remind you to please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in.